Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, January 5th, 2024. the first story at the top of antiwar.com today u.s drone strike kills an iraqi militia leader in baghdad so more escalations here a u.s drone strike in baghdad killed a senior militia leader on thursday marking another significant escalation that could lead to a full-blown regional war the strike killed mushtaq talib al-saidi also known as abu taqwa so I saw different names for this guy who was killed, uh, but every outlet reported that he goes. He went by Abu Taqwa, and he was a deputy commander of the Popular Mobilization Forces, the PMF, the, the commander of their operations in Baghdad. So the PMF is a coalition of mostly Shia Iraqi militias that are part of the government's security forces. And at least one other militia member was killed in the strike, which targeted a PMF base in Baghdad. And initially, there was reports of this Thursday morning, and the Pentagon officially took credit for the bombing Thursday afternoon. And the Pentagon claims that Abu Taqwa was believed to be responsible for attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria that started in October in response to U.S. support for Israel's onslaught in Gaza, but the U.S. has not provided any evidence for this assertion. We're just supposed to take their word that this was a guy behind some of the attacks, and they claimed he was planning more attacks. And this drone strike has enraged the Iraqi government, which condemned it as a flagrant violation of sovereignty and said that it was no different from a terrorist attack. So again, the Iraqi government, very unhappy with what the U.S. is doing. The U.S. has launched several airstrikes in Iraq since October, all of which have been strongly condemned by the government of Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani, who is supposed to be the U.S.'s partner in the country, but Uh, The U.S. keeps working against it by launching these airstrikes without informing the Iraqi government. Al-Sudani's government has also condemned the attacks on U.S. bases, but they want to work to find the perpetrators and they strongly oppose the unilateral U.S. airstrikes and extrajudicial killings. I mean, that's what this is. This, This is an assassination of somebody allegedly behind these attacks. And you know what? This, uh happened four years and one day after the U.S. launched a drone strike in Baghdad that killed Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general, and the leader of the PMF at the time. Uh, So, you know, a sensitive time in Iraq that this strike was launched. So al-Sudani said last week, the, the Iraqi prime minister said that his government was heading towards ending the presence of foreign forces in Iraq, which includes 2,500 U.S. troops. And Iraq's parliament voted to expel U.S. troops back in 2020 after the Soleimani killing. But the U.S. refused to leave. And Iraqi prime ministers have been under pressure since then to get the U.S. out. Unfortunately for Iraq, the U.S. has a lot of power and leverage over them. Iraq's foreign currency reserves are held by the U.S. Federal Reserve. That means the U.S. can destroy the Iraqi dinar, could devalue the currency. The U.S. also just has tight control over 
other economic things in Iraq uh, and can really just destroy their economy if they wanted to. So they're essentially held hostage by the U.S. All right, so the next one here, Israel attacks Hezbollah targets in southern Lebanon. This article is from Jason Ditz. So with the very real possibility that the assassination of Hamas figure Salah al-Aruri in Beirut earlier this week could expand the ongoing war, Israel seemingly increased the odds on Thursday with a flurry of attacks on Hezbollah targets in southern Lebanon. These hit an observation post and multiple infrastructure targets. They also reportedly struck an anti-tank squad. Um, So... Jason mentions that Aruri was instrumental in brokering the major Israel-Hamas hostage deal, and he was reportedly trying to get another one going before Israel killed him. Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah warned in a televised speech that the assassination would not go unpunished, and hitting Beirut was a very big deal, essentially was what he said. Um, So it seemed like, you know, they really things kind of ramped up a little bit, the strikes across the Israel-Lebanon border. Um, And this is just a place, again, to really keep an eye on uh, because things could explode. And, um, you know, it seems like Israel is trying to really provoke something here. All right, so the next one here, ISIS takes credit for bombing in Kerman, Iran. So ISIS took credit on one of their Telegram channels for the bombing in Iran that killed 84 people. Yesterday, I said over 100 people were killed. Um, That's what some reports said, but the death toll, the latest death tolls, 84 were killed and over 100 wounded. Um, And I was a little skeptical at this at first. And, you know, when I say ISIS, I know the abbreviation stands for the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, and this is over in Iran, but that is their, you know, the, the most commonly use name for them. So we kind of stick to just calling them ISIS, um, the Islamic State. Um, So again, I was a little skeptical of this. This is just their Telegram channel. And ISIS has taken credit for things in the past that they haven't done. But I saw Iranian media was reporting this and they seem to be taking it seriously. Um, And there's another thing here. So the, the ISIS statement said that two of their members died. It was a suicide bombing. And Iranian officials initially said that Bombs were left in bags on the side of the road. But on Thursday, Iranian media was reporting uh, IRNA, which is an Iranian news agency, said they cited sources who said it looked like it was a suicide bombing. At least one of the explosions was a suicide bombing. Um, and that likely the second one as well. They said the first explosion was a man who was completely dismembered as a result of the explosion and the identification of the bomber is under investigation. So the bombing targeted a memorial commemorating the fourth anniversary of the U.S. killing of Iranian Quds Force commander Qasem Soleimani, who was targeted by a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad on January 3rd, 2020. So, um... And I just mentioned now Israel is also a suspect in this bombing because of its history of attacks inside Iran and the timing. At the same time, this bombing is far beyond anything, you know, the scale that it's beyond anything Israel has done inside Iran. Um, So far, Iran has still not attributed blame. They haven't said, yes, it was ISIS or, you know, we'll see uh, what happens in the coming days. It'll be interesting to see what the Iranian officials say. Um, So we will see how this all plays out. All right, so the next one here, the White House slams genocide case against Israel. 
The White House on Wednesday slammed South Africa's genocide case against Israel that was filed at the International Court of Justice. That's the ICJ, and it's one of the UN's courts based in The Hague. So when asked about the 84-page lawsuit, and I would recommend I link to it, you could go read it. Uh, It's a pretty strong case for genocide. So White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby was asked about this, and this was actually on Wednesday. And what he said, uh, his response was, quote, we find this submission meritless, counterproductive, and completely without any basis in fact whatsoever, end quote. So I think U.S. officials must be nervous about this because if Israel is found guilty of genocide by the ICJ, the U.S. is implicated in that, in aiding and abetting a genocide as they're providing all these weapons, not just weapons, but political cover. And when it comes to people like John Kirby justifying Israel's attacks on civilians, and and he himself has has shrugged off the, the massive civilian casualty rate, basically just as a price of war, uh, acknowledged that many, many thousands of innocent people were being killed. He even said, oh, yeah, they're going to kill, keep killing civilians. That's just the war. Um, you know, and then they try to blame it on Hamas. So, you know, history, if, if Israel is formally found to be committing a genocide, you know, John Kirby, these, these propagandists are, are not going to go down well in history. I mean, that's got to be on his mind. Um, So the case against Israel could take years, but South Africa is asking the ICJ to immediately declare that Israel is committing acts that could be considered genocidal and issue an interim order to halt its military operations. Hearings on the interim order are scheduled for January 11th and the 12th, and Israel is preparing to defend itself, signaling that it is worried about the case. And there have been... uh, I know when it comes to this case, Israel, when it comes to the ICJ, because then you have the International Criminal Court, which is another international court, and that um, oversees prosecutions of individuals. The ICJ settles disputes between states, and they um, Israel is a signatory to, to some kind of genocide convention, so that means it is you know kind of a party to the ICJ, unlike the ICC, because the ICC has opened up probes into Israeli war crimes before, and they just say, oh, they have no authority, whatever. But they're actually going to defend themselves at the ICJ. And the ICJ has no power to enforce its order for Israel to halt military operations. And it can't really take action, even if it determines a genocide is being committed. But the ruling would be a major diplomatic blow to the U.S. and Israel. Um, So South Africa has a strong case against Israel since over 22,000 Palestinians, mostly women and children, have been killed by Israel's onslaught in just less than three months. Over 50 Palestinians have been wounded and nearly 90% have been displaced. Many are starving or facing starvation. And genocide is defined by Article 2 of the UN's Genocide Convention as, quote, a crime committed with the intent to destroy a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group in whole or in part, end quote. Intent to commit serious physical harm against a group needs to be shown to prove that a state is guilty of genocide at the ICJ, so they need to show intent. And the way that South Africa did that in this filing was just quoting Israeli officials. Uh, a few quotes that they included, included in that they included uh, 
were the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, when this thing first started, announcing the full siege. No water, no electricity, no food, saying that they're fighting human animals. The Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, saying that there's no innocent civilians in Gaza when this thing first started, and many other quotes that they included. So, you know, uh, again, the U.S. must be, you know, kind of squirming about this. For all the talk about this, the rules-based order and international law and all the lecturing they did uh, when it comes to the war in Ukraine. Um, all right, so the next one here, Biden campaign staffers protest U.S. support for Israel's onslaught. So a group of 17 staffers for President Biden's 2024 re-election have signed onto an anonymous letter protesting the president's support for the Israeli slaughter of Palestinians in Gaza. The letter reads, quote, complicity in the death of over 20,000 Palestinians, 8,200 of whom are children, simply cannot be justified, end quote. The staffers said that President Biden was losing support due to his full-throated support for the Israeli campaign, noting that 72% of voters under 30 disapprove disapprove of his handling of the conflict, and recent polling has shown that the majority of Americans favor a ceasefire in Gaza, a position that the president opposes. The letter reads, quote, Biden for president staff have seen volunteers quit in droves, and people who have voted blue for decades feel uncertain about doing so for the first time ever because of this conflict, end quote. The staffers called for President Biden to use leverage to push for a ceasefire in Gaza, advocate for de-escalation in the region, end unconditional military aid to Israel, and work toward ending the Israeli occupation and other root causes of the conflict. The letter is the latest dissent from within the Democratic Party against the Biden administration's support for Israel. A coalition of over 500 former staffers for President Biden's 2020 campaign, and it also included some just Democratic Party staff, they signed a similar letter in November, um, and they put their names on it. So there's also been the internal dissent within the administration itself, as hundreds of officials have signed on to letters protesting the war, and several have resigned. So a lot of pressure on Biden here. I mean, you know, they're basically saying, Saying that volunteers are quitting in droves, I mean, it seems pretty significant. I guess 17 staffers isn't that many people when it comes to a political campaign, but still, it just sounds significant. And, and again, the polling and, and you know, it's it's uh, doesn't look good for Biden's chances for 2024. Um, all right. So the next one here, strike kills 12 people, mostly children in a Gaza safe zone. So this article is from AP. Uh, And they actually change the article. They do this sometimes, so I'm going to have to switch this out. Uh, But basically, the story said that 12 people, mostly children, were killed in an Israeli airstrike in one of the so-called safe zones in Gaza. So the next one here, Israeli Defense Minister Outlines New Phase in Gaza. This article is from Al Jazeera, and Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant has outlined Israel's plans for the next phase of its assault on the besieged Gaza Strip and future scenarios for the day after the war ends. Gallant's office said, quote, in the northern region of the Gaza Strip, we will transition to a new combat approach in accordance with military achievements on the ground, end quote. Um, And he said that operations would include raids, demolishing tunnels, air and ground strikes and special forces operations. Now, in the south, things are going to continue as they are. Heavy airstrikes, 
heavy ground operations. And they say that will continue for as long as necessary. So we have seen the U.S. call for a more targeted approach. Sounds like they might be doing something like that in the north where they've destroyed most of the buildings there, I think something like 80 percent. And now in the south where all the people are, where most of the people are, uh, they're going to continue. So no relief for the for the majority of Gazans who are who are in the south. Um and Gallant was also discussing what's going to happen after the war. This seems like a little damage control uh, after all these statements from Ben Gavir and Smotrich and other Israeli officials. There was also that report that said the ethnic cleansing of Gaza is becoming an official Israeli policy. Gallant said that Hamas would no longer control Gaza and Israel would reserve its operational freedom of action. But he said there would be no Israeli civilian presence and Palestinian bodies would be in charge of the enclave. Uh, with with lots of conditions saying that there'll be no hostile actions. Um, so again, that to me, that just sounds like damage control for all the uh, other things that Israeli officials have been saying. All right, so the next one here, the Washington Post erases Israeli minister's October 7th rape claim at his request. So this article is from the Gray Zone, and it is by Wyatt Reed. It's an interesting story. Um it says the Washington Post has quietly removed an outlandish claim by Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant that Hamas battle plans included specific instructions on which Israeli troops should be raped during their October 7th incursion. In the original article, which was published on November 12th and promoted as a Washington Post exclusive, Gallant is quoted as telling the outlet, quote, We know from interrogations that Hamas came in with detailed plans of their attack including which commander should rape which soldiers in different places, end quote. A day later, the allegation disappeared from the piece, which has been amended to include the following correction. Um, it said a previous version of this article included a quote from Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant that was not authorized for publication. The quote has been removed. The act of self-censorship was seemingly first spotted by a social media user, who suggested that the embarrassing incident was a result of what they described as the Israeli way of propaganda, privately lying to a journalist to shape her coverage, then scrambling to correct the record when the journalist accidentally prints the lies you told her in confidence. Um, so we've just seen a lot of claims from Israeli officials, kind of atrocity propaganda to justify what they're doing in Gaza. All right, so the next one here, U.S. aircraft carrier patrols the South China Sea. So a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier conducted joint patrols and exercises with the Philippine military in the South China Sea in the latest U.S. provocation in the region aimed at China. The USS Carl Vinson and its strike group, which includes a cruiser and two de destroyers, participated in the operations on Wednesday and Thursday, along with four Philippine vessels, including former Coast Guard cutters. So they have some old U.S. Coast Guard cutters. Um... Romeo Brauner Jr., who's the chief of staff of the Philippine Armed Forces, said, quote, the maritime cooperative activity marks a significant leap in our alliance and interoperability with the United States. It also demonstrates our progress in defense capabilities and development as a world-class armed force, end quote. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin was asked about the joint drills and denounced them as a provocation. 
He said, quote, we would like to stress that the U.S. and the Philippines muscle flexing provocative military actions in the South China Sea are not conducive to managing the situation on the sea and handling maritime disputes, end quote. So the U.S. and the Philippines relaunched joint patrols in the South China Sea in November, marking the first time in seven years that they did these joint patrols that, you know, they do joint military exercises, but this is different. They kind of cruise around the South China Sea together. Um, and this one was a much bigger show of force. The first, the one that they did in November was just one U.S., I believe, a littoral combat ship, which is a small uh, vessel and a one U.S. surveillance aircraft. So this time they come with a full carrier strike group. Um, and this comes, you know, tensions are soaring in the South China Sea. China and the Philippines have overlapping claims. And Marcos, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., um, Bong Bong, as they call him, he is pushing back. He's much more aggressively pushing back against China's claims. And he's emboldened by the U.S. The U.S. and the Philippines have been increasing their military alliance. The U.S. is expanding its military bases in the Philippines. And whenever the these incidents happen pretty frequently between Chinese and Philippine boats, sometimes there's collisions around these disputed reefs. Whenever that happens, the U.S. comes out and says attacks. Um, they say the U.S.-Philippine Mutual Defense Treaty applies to attacks on Philippine vessels in the South China Sea. So that means the U.S. is saying they will intervene to um, you know, if this thing turns hot, the U.S. will directly intervene against China, a nuclear armed power. So that's how involved the U.S. is in this maritime dispute in the South China Sea. All right. So the next one here, the U.S. and South Korea conduct drills near the North Korean border. This is one from Kyle Anzalone. So these are live fire drills that American and South Korean soldiers are conducting near the North Korean border. Uh, just more provocations and the North Korea usually responds to these by launching some missiles, um, and it's just showing how the tensions continue to rise. The South Korean army said the week-long war games involved heavy weapons and ended on Thursday. For the drills, a South Korean mechanized infantry brigade joined an American army striker brigade. In total, over 110 weapons platforms were used, including tanks, anti-aircraft artillery, combat earth movers, attack aircraft, and armored fighting vehicles. So a lot of firepower. All right, so the next one here is good news. Rare good news. New Hampshire House passes the Defend the Guard Act. So if you're not familiar with the Defend the Guard Act, um, it's basically local state legislation that would not allow the federal government to deploy the state's National Guard to a conflict unless it, there was a formal uh, declaration of war by Congress. And it's a very grassroots movement uh, that's relatively new. And they've been working really hard in different states getting this legislation passed. So on Thursday, Defend the Guard passed the New Hampshire House of Representatives in a vote of 187 to 182. Uh, it would prohibit the deployment of the New Hampshire National Guard into overseas combat unless Congress first votes to declare war. And they deploy the National Guard to Syria and to these places where the U.S. is at war. Um so the party breakdown was 163 Republicans and 22 Democrats in favor, with 156 Democrats and 26 Republicans against. Um, so they're very happy uh, that this passed. And I don't know how it's going to do in the New Hampshire Senate. From what I've heard, the Senate is not very good in New Hampshire. 
Um, but still, this is significant. This is the second state legislature that this has passed through. This passed through Arizona, the Arizona Senate in March, but it didn't make it through their house. But again, this is a new thing. So the fact that they're already getting this passed through state legislatures is a big deal. And you could go to this is done by the organization Bring Our Troops Home. Uh, they're friends of ours. They're very dedicated activists. Um, so you could go check out Bring Our Troops Home. Go to Defend the Guard. US, you could see how you can get involved in your state. And it's something I think I want to get involved in. I need to take some steps to see what I can do in Virginia, because I know there's nobody really working on it in Virginia. There would be a lot of people in Virginia, especially Northern Virginia, who would want to work against it, but I still think it, it would be worth uh, doing. All right. So the last one here, uh, the U.S. is out of money to arm Ukraine. So the Pentagon said on Thursday that the U.S. is out of money to arm Ukraine as Congress has yet to authorize more spending on the proxy war. The Pentagon technically has $4.2 billion in presidential drawdown authority to ship weapons to Ukraine, but does not have the funds to replenish the arms. So Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder said, quote, we have the authority to spend that from available funds, but wouldn't have the ability to replenish the stocks by taking money out or taking stuff out of our inventory. We're out of money, end quote. So the $4.2 billion is what's left of $6.2 billion that was freed up by a so-called accounting error that overvalued previous arms shipments to Ukraine without the so-called error, the U.S. would have run out of money to arm Ukraine months ago. And I saw somebody make the point, you know, kind of call BS on this story on on Twitter when we tweeted it out, basically saying if they wanted to send the money, wanted you know, if they could, they could make the money appear like they have for Israel. Where's all this money coming from for what they're shipping Israel? They're not being transparent at all. Um, So I think that's something to to kind of keep in mind because it could show even though the Biden administration is desperately asking Congress to pass more authorization for this war. You know, do they really want to keep fueling this thing? I think they do, but uh, I think it's just something to think about. So the Biden administration announced a $250 million weapons package for Ukraine on December 27th that the White House said was the last one until Congress authorizes more spending. Um, So that's it for the news for today. Please go check out our viewpoints. One from Mark G. D. Joff. Should U.S. taxpayers cover Ukraine's pensions? One from Doug Bandow, so now Washington tells us. One from Mel Gertov, bombing Gaza, disturbing comparisons with Vietnam. One from Jim Bovard, truth is the biggest threat to the D.C. democracy. And one from Trita Parsi, will Israel drag us into another ruinous war? And also um, the House bill to free Julian Assange. We left that story up. Call your representative in the House. Tell them to support that legislation. A few people told me today that they made the call, so that's very good. So let's keep that up. Um, But that's it for me for the week. I hope everybody has a good weekend. Um, You can support the show by sharing it, liking, subscribing on YouTube or wherever you prefer to watch. Tell your friends about Antiwar.com. But I'll talk to you after the weekend. Thanks for listening.